So please welcome this morning, Christine. Good morning, ladies. I'm so excited to be here with you guys. I just wanna thank Amber and the group. You guys have put on an amazing morning for the women here today. I have felt so welcome. Um, I'm blown away by the decorations, by the food. It's just a little overwhelming, but in a very good way. So I hope you're feeling blessed this morning. Um, and just thank you to all the volunteers and the, the people who have worked so hard to pull it all together. Um, my name is Christine. I am a mom and a wife. I've been married for 13 years. I have three kids, a 10-year-old daughter, a three-year-old son, and a two-year-old daughter. And um, they're 15 months apart, and I call Charlotte my Christmas surprise of 2014. Um, it was in the Lord's plan, but not mine, and that's okay. Some of the best things come that way, right? Um, so about a year ago, just to give you a little bit of background about the book, the book is called Clean Home, Messy Heart, Promises of Renewal, Hope, and Change for Overwhelmed Moms. And um, I don't know about you, I'm an overwhelmed mom, anyone else? Am I the only one here today? Just a little overwhelmed? Moderately overwhelmed? Okay, <laughs> maybe. I'm glad I'm not alone. But about a year ago, and um, what I love about Facebook is they give you these Facebook memories so you can really relive, whether it was good or bad, um, <laughs> what had happened, you know, a year ago today. Um, and a year ago in September, a health crisis hit my family, and my husband all of a sudden um, contracted viral meningitis. And there was about a two-week period where it went from strep throat, tonsillitis, to finally viral meningitis. There was worries about West Nile. We had just had a friend pass away from West Nile and complications to that. So it was a very scary time. He was put on 48-hour um, uh, quarantine. We couldn't see him. Nobody could go in without getting all geared up and like you're in a space suit. And um, so really the book comes from that time I was about two weeks off and on taking care of my husband, but while he was in the hospital, I had three kids and all by myself. And I've been speaking to a few moms and I think you know a little bit about what it is to have the kids all by yourself and there's no help and there's no family around to come give you a break and they're driving you crazy. Um, and so pile on top of that, the fact that I take a lot of my anger and frustration out of my home. And so sometimes people will think um, the, clean, the clean home, messy heart, oh, well, what if I don't have a clean home? No, 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 you don't understand. My home is messy. I obsess about cleaning it. And so that's really where the title is coming from. And um, for those of you who maybe are 90s kids and you know the band 311, there's a, a song that's called From Chaos. And one of the lyrics is, from chaos comes clarity. And I really feel like now looking back a year later, there is so much clarity. And what I wrote in the book, the stories the Lord had me share, all came from that one week to, or one and a half week period of my husband being gone and me coming face to face with dealing with these kids who we know are little sinners, but <laughs> it's true. They're little sinners, but guess what? So am I, right? And so are we. And so the Lord used my children uh, in a very intense way uh, to reveal that, to reveal my own heart struggles um, during that time. And so the heart of the book, you guys have um, 
Your theme for today is the Campfire Collective, Adventures and Motherhood. And that's really the theme of this book, is the adventures of, of that week and how the Lord uses our kids to reveal our heart struggles and our relationship with him and how the gospel really does apply. We can really truly learn to see the gospel in every circumstance that we face in our everyday motherhood. And that's really where um, the heart of the book is and what I wanna share with you today. So, we're gonna talk about some hard things, but I don't wanna have you shy away from it because talking about the hard things and bringing them to light is what gives us hope because we don't have a wishful thinking kind of hope, right? We don't want to sulk about looking at our sin and have a pity party. The Bible doesn't call us to have pity parties when we mess up or when we fail. The Bible calls us to repent, confess, be in fellowship. We're gonna talk more about that um, as we go on. And we can take our messy motherhood and intentionally learn to thrive in it. And I know that's part of your theme too. And it's not because everything is awesome, like the Lego movie says. <laughs> everything is awesome. That's really, that was good. I like the audio. Not saying my song was good, but the, sing, the acoustics. I've never done that before. That's the first, and you witnessed it. Um, <laughs> But um, hope is definitely gonna be a theme today as well. Oh, before I go any further, I did provide on the table, there are note pages. So I, I, uh, Amber told me that you guys have possibly notebooks that you like to take notes in. If you didn't bring yours, no worries. I, I brought a page you can doodle on or whatever, um, write notes if you are so inclined. If not, just sit back, relax, and enjoy. Um, but I definitely want to just drive home that the hope we're talking about today is not a wishful thinking kind of hope, ladies. It is a witnessed hope. The faith and the hope we have in Christ is a witnessed hope, not a wishful hope. So I'm gonna tell three stories um, that are in the book uh, today. The topics are about loving the ugly, about sin habits, and about running away. And so the first story of my son Cash, um, and it's in the book, um, I was just, it was a regular morning trying to get my kid dressed, and I'm sure if you've had a toddler, um, or any kid, I guess even the older ones, but uh, trying to get him dressed for the day. So uh, the refusal to put on shoes, the refusal to put on a t-shirt. At this particular time, I had him up on the changing table, and I was just trying to get the kid dressed and he was screaming and kicking and rebelling and having the biggest temper tantrum because I just wanted to put his t-shirt on. That's all I wanted to do. And I literally tried as hard as I could to be calm about it for about five minutes. Just, I'm gonna defeat him. I'm going to just be patient and he's not gonna win and I'm gonna put this shirt on. Well, he didn't put the shirt on and I've got frustrated. I put him down on the floor and I went and told my husband to deal with it. And I was so overwhelmed. I was, he, he did win, he did win, I'm gonna admit. But I was so overwhelmed, I went downstairs, I walked outside and I was just so frustrated. And maybe you can relate to that. When that anger just wells up so much and you're like, I'm going to literally explode. You remove yourself from the situation. I went to the backyard, I leaned up against the fence and then I just couldn't contain it anymore. My tears of frustration just came out. And it sounds silly now sharing it a year later. Um, why would I be crying because I couldn't get his shirt on? But it was just, we get so tired of dealing with these things over and over again. We get worn down. We just wanna do simple little tasks. And, it, and sometimes with the children, the simple things are the hardest things. So I started praying and I started praying in that moment, Lord, I need help. Will you please just help me with this situation? Um, and I started praying a psalm that talked about being delivered from trouble. 
And very quickly, I got comfort from the Lord, but the comfort that I got was not the comfort I was looking for. And it rarely, rarely is. Sometimes uh, the Lord comforts us in ways that we were not expecting. And I was convicted there at the fence that um, I was not really praying to be relieved of trouble. He said, Christine, this is not trouble. This is love. This is what I've called you to. You're praying to be delivered from inconvenience. And I was like, dang. <laughs> because I'm pretty sure the Lord wants me to suffer through this inconvenience. You know, he's not in the business of delivering us from uh, the call to love others uh, the way that he wants us to. And so instantly my comfort idolatry was revealed to me. I was praying to a God of comfort, not the God of all comforts. The God of all comforts promises to be with us in our troubles. He doesn't always promise to deliver us out of our troubles when there's a lesson to be learned from it. We have to walk through some of these, some of these ugly things um, because he wants our sanctification. He wants us to grow. And so there is a way to love through the fit and the fight, as I guess, um, as I call it in the book. And um, I want to take our attention, you know, these stories that I tell are just small little snippets of God and his plan for our motherhood and sanctifying us through it, through these situations. So we're gonna be a lot in the word today. You don't have to thumb through your Bible to try to find it because there are so many scriptures, but if you, um, if you wanna just take notes of, of the addresses, that's fine. But I'm gonna read from you uh, from Romans and uh, a depiction of what love, loving the ugly really is. And so let me... Um, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good put person, one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him, or by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God um, by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, so shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we have now received reconciliation. There's a lot in that passage, but this passage is about loving the ugly. Christ came and died for us while we were still sinners. It was not a deserved sacrifice. We did not earn it, but it was because of God's love for us that uh, it happened. And so all we did was bring our sin, but uh, Jesus brought our salvation. If we look back at the passage, you hear the words, we were still weak, we were ungodly, we were sinners, we were facing wrath, we were enemies. But how much of that verse did you hear about God? Because there's a lot about God in that verse. And I don't want our focus, because we're talking about hard things that have to do with our hearts, we see those things, but our hope and our focus needs to be turned to the Lord and what he has done. We cannot remove the awe from this passage, the awe that he went first. And how hard is that? If you have been in an argument or you've had a relationship issue and both of you have sinned against each other and you're sitting playing the waiting game of who's gonna say the first apology, right? Who's gonna go first? Who's gonna humble themselves to make the first move? And God made the first move. He humbled himself to the point of death on a cross to make the first move because of his love. 
And that is an extremely amazing thing. I, want, I don't want to glaze over it because that is the whole foundation of your growing in faith and your growing in trust in the Lord is by first understanding his love for you when you did not deserve it. And take a look at this passage. The very last thing it ends with is joy. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We are reconciled by the blood of grace, ladies, and we're called to joy. I want to share with you a quote from Matthew Henry um, that talks about this joy. He says, Iniquity, blessed be God, shall not be our ruin. And not only so, there is more in it yet, a constant stream of favors. We not only go to heaven, but we go to heaven triumphantly. We not only get into the harbor, but we come in with full sail. We joy in God, not only saved from his wrath, but solacing ourselves in his love. And this through Jesus Christ, who is the Alpha and Omega, the foundation stone, the top stone of all of our comforts and hope. Not only our salvation, but our strength and our song. And 1 John 3.16 says, this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid his life down for us. And so what is our response to that type of love? What does John continue to say? He says, because of this love, we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters. In these scriptures, there is a theme. It's a theme of love, more specifically the theme of God's love. By God's love, we are motivated in such a way to love others regardless of how they're treating us. This love we have received is the only motivation that gives us the power to grow in our willingness and our ability to be beautifully selfless instead of bitterly sorrowful as I was that day at the fence. But we can't stop there because now it sounds like I might be holding up Christ as an example and telling you, okay, now go and be like that. And how many of us can walk out the doors with confidence today knowing that when we go back to pick up our kids, we can love in a Christ-like way? We want to, but our ability to may not match <laughs> the desire to, the, right? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And scripture exhorts us to be holy as our Father is holy, but it also comforts us that our sanctification is a process empowered by the spirit. Don't limit Christ to only being an example, ladies. He's not just an example. He's your savior. And if you could make these changes in your heart by yourself, you wouldn't need him. But you can't. And so you do. You do need him. The perfect example of Christ, the perfect fulfillment of the law and his flawless love of God and neighbor, we look to those things in awe and they crush us. They crush us because we can't be that way in our own strength, by our own power. We can't will these changes to happen on their own. And this crushing is, is meant to remind us of our dependence upon God. This crushing is not meant to put you into depression or to make you angry or bitter. This crushing of Christ's example and his perfection is meant to draw us into God's grace and to pull us closer into relationship with him and realize where our hope for change really comes from. In Christ, we are never hopeless, and by his spirit, we are never helpless. 2 Timothy 1.7 reads, for the spirit God gives us 
or gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power and love and self-discipline. Ladies, the spirit of God, if he dwells in you, he's alive in you. You have him. He's inside. It's not some kind of a wishful thinking kind of spirit. It's a witness spirit. It's a witness spirit living inside of you. He is alive. He has equipped us with power, with self-control, with love. And he's teaching us how to tap into these, these resources. Listen to um, this verse from Peter. Grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of our Jesus, or in, of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for the life of godliness through knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Through these, he has given us his precious and magnificent promises so that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature now that you have escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. We have already been given and supplied everything that we need to be partakers of divine nature according to this scripture. This is good news. It's in there, ladies, right? This is awesome. It wasn't in there before we knew Christ. That change and that DNA was not there before we met him, before we um, received his spirit. And now so we can look at how Christ loved others and how this love had no prerequisite or requirement and know that God's precious and magnificent promises guarantee that as we come to know him and his gospel more, we will increase in our ability to love others well. This is not a magical transformation, but it is a miraculous one, and we get to play a part in it. As the scripture says, the grace and peace of Christ become multiplied to us as we seek God through his word, and we gain knowledge of God as his spirit illuminates his word for us. I want you to listen to these scriptures that talk about seeking God. Deuteronomy 4.29. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and all your soul. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. That's Lamentations 3.25. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Proverbs 34.10. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Psalm 9.10. By his word, we seek the Lord. We seek his grace for change. We grow in our trust of his process. And we, we grow in our ability to love others biblically. It all boils down to God's love. The more we fill our hearts with the knowledge of this divine love, the more our hearts are softened to love others well. And so understanding biblical love is a foundational building block of thriving faith. And you guys are here today, and that part of your theme is thriving in motherhood. We have to make it a point to study God's love for us and what biblical love truly is so that we can build that awesome foundation that will end up producing fruit, a harvest of righteousness um, as we continue to grow. Above all, um, 1 Peter 4, 8 says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. And a deep biblical love for others is the fruit of faith that is secure in how deep the Father's love is for us. But without this deep love, we cannot cover our multitude of sins. Without this deep love, we are tempted to grow angry, bitter, hopeless, 
helpless, especially as we witness the repetitive sins of our children, right? Because we can't change their hearts. Um, so going into the next story uh, that is, um, is talk, gonna talk about sin habits, so we're s switching uh, topics here. Uh, an example of trying to cover a multitude of sins, my daughter, Brianna, who was seven at the time, um, thought it would be a great idea to, I'm not even really sure what instrument she used, it might have just been a fork or something, um, but to carve into our dining table that was wood, and she thought it was just great idea, yeah. Um, I didn't think it was such a great idea, and I got really angry, and, um, you know, but to my surprise, two years later, she did the exact same thing as a nine-year-old. Come on, ladies, a nine-year-old should know better than to deface property with a fork, uh, especially since she has already been disciplined for it before, right? I'm not the only one who would assume that, correct? Um, but as parents, we're prone to think that time equals maturity, and as they grow up, they will grow out of particular behaviors, um, especially the ones they've been disciplined and punished over before. Um, and so I was just, I was shocked. I was shocked that she did this. I was shocked at her judgment. But in this moment, remember, my husband was gone, and uh, this was just adding to the fire, burning inside of me. Um, God revealed something of myself in that moment. And the potential for poor judgment knows no bounds, even with age or experience on our side. If we're honest with ourselves, we can say that the shortcomings we have in our sin are often repetitive in nature. We're so quick to wave fingers at our children and to condemn them without even realizing that we're guilty of the very same things. Paul talked about this struggle in Romans 7. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, and the evil I do not want, I keep on doing. Ladies, there's hope here. Okay, it doesn't sound very hopeful, but let's look at this. Sometime between 35 and 38 AD, so um, Christ was crucified, 33, so a couple years after um, Christ was crucified, um, a man named Saul had an encounter with the living Christ on the road to Damascus. And we, of course, know now his name is Paul. Paul is the one who wrote that verse I just read. And the book of Romans is dated to be written around 56 AD. So we're talking about 20 years later from the encounter with Christ to the time he wrote these words about his struggle. 20 years of intense fellowship with Christ, persecution, church planning, teaching, and preaching, and Paul still has this problem. Can we relate can we relate to walking with the Lord for maybe even decades and still struggling with, with perhaps even some of the same sin issues? I think most of us would say, yes, yes, we can relate. I can relate to that. But I want to challenge you to go deeper with that. Can you also make Paul's words your own from 1 Timothy 1.15 where he says, this is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them all. How many of us will take those words as readily and confess we are the worst of all sinners? I am the worst sinner I know. 
that's a harder pill to swallow. I think some of us may agree with it in theory, but not necessarily in practice. I will go ahead and confess to you, because I'm not preaching at you. This is, all of these things are still lessons for my own heart. And even in the last year since I've written this book and had this lesson from the Lord, I had an angry outburst probably um, eight months ago. And out of my frustration, I kicked the wall in the bathroom and now there's a big hole. (laughs) But wait, there's more. About six months later, feeling that same frustration, I slammed the door to my children's room and kicked the wall, or kicked the door, and now there's also a hole in the door. So there's two. I'm confessing, I'm laying it out there, ladies. Don't leave me hanging, okay? I'm not the only one here, right? I'm not trying to bring glory to that. I'm not saying that that's okay. I'm very embarrassed about that, but I'm not ashamed because the Lord is helping me to conquer that anger minute by minute. Um, But it does go to show us that we are full and capable of far greater sins than we might care to admit. Even those of us who are mature in Christ, even those of us who have been walking with him a long time. Author Elise Fitzpatrick writes, our sin is only bad news if we do not have a savior. Our slavery to sin has been broken. That doesn't mean we will never struggle against sin or that the struggle won't be desperate at times, but it does mean that sin's power to condemn us, to fill us with obedience, depleting guilt is over. And yes, it's disappointing to recognize how sinful and wretched we can really be. And I think the closer that we get to God's holiness, the more dreadful our wicked ways really start to become. But we can have two choices when we hit the crossroads of sin and sanctification. We can choose to believe we're fighting a battle that we cannot win, or we can choose to believe we're fighting a battle that we cannot lose. Friend, I'm telling you today that in Christ you're fighting a battle you cannot lose. These scriptures I just shared with you from Paul, they continue on, you know. Uh, Paul ends Romans 7 with, or Romans 7, Romans 7 with, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the hope, ladies. Call Paul's himself the worst of sinners, then he quickly, quickly turns his attention to Christ. But God had mercy on me so that Jesus Christ could make me the prime example of his great patience with even the worst of sinners. Then others will realize too and believe in him and have eternal life. All honor and glory to God forever and ever, for he is the eternal king the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God, amen. Robert Murray M. Cheyenne once wrote, for every one look at self, take 10 looks at Christ. And we can take those looks at Christ by looking in his word. We can look at our sin, examine it for what it really is. It's an offense against God alone. And we can choose despair or we can choose to glory in the cross. Grace gives us the freedom to look at the hard stuff and to peel back the layers and to confess the Lord, um, confess to the Lord, but also to those we have hurt. And that's a very important part of this uh, heart change is not just confession and repentance to the Lord, but to each other, to the ones that we've sinned against um, and who our sin has impacted. 
But this freedom is guaranteed and granted because of the cross. We are no longer slaves to sin, as Romans 6, 6 says. We are in Christ now. We have freedom to fight a battle we cannot lose because Christ is our victory. So we fight because heart change is not going to come if we continue to reason away and make excuses for our sin. Heart change comes as we open our hands to receive good convictions about our bad places and then bring God's word to those bad places to start the renovations. So we have this hope for renewal and change through God's power and promises. Timothy Keller writes, the gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. It is because of this love and faithfulness from God we can enlist to actively engage in the battle against repetitive enslaving sins. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Look for God in this verse. Don't get so focused on, I'm being tempted, I'm being tempted. What is God doing here? The verse says God is faithful. He is in control of the measure of your temptation. He has made a route of escape already for you, and he will help you to endure it. The scripture doesn't say that God will remove us from the temptations once we become Christians, but he does promise to grow us to thrive beyond the temptation. We can know and trust that on the other side of our temptations is always something better. It's God's way of escape, and his way is the true and better way. Psalm 25, 4 says, Show me the right path, O Lord. Point out the road for me to follow. And he will do that because he is faithful. You know, sometimes it's really hard to trust that God, God's ways are right because they make so little sense to us. You know, he says, my thoughts are higher than my thoughts. My ways are not your ways. Um, and we have problems in our lives. I'm sure many of us do unfolding right now. We're praying and we're seeking him. And it seems like he's not doing anything about it. It causes us to grow anxious, upset, worried, even angry. And it tempts us to try to take things into our own hands. And when we get to that point, we end up turning our backs on the Lord and his perfect timing. We read his word, but we aren't seeing his action. And our fight or flight mode kicks in. We find ourselves having become runners. Speaking of running, <laughs> segue. Another story in the book with my son, um, who was two at the time, we were at the park and we were packing up to leave. I told him, I give him like, I don't know if anyone else does this, but I give him the two minute warning, you know, so it's not just an instant, get in the car. But he, I feel like is getting mature. So I say, son, we have five minutes and then we have two minutes and then we have one minute and now it's time to go. So give him some prep time um, to hopefully avoid a meltdown. And in this case, it's, it seemed like it worked. He was very compliant and I was like, wow. Praise the Lord. He didn't argue with me that we're leaving the park. Um, so we walked out the gate. 
I'm pushing my daughter in the stroller, and my son is walking, but he starts kind of drifting away, as toddlers tend to do, and he's tiptoeing on the little blue handicap paint on the curb, and I'm trying to wrangle my daughter out of the stroller, and he gets this twinkle in his eye, as two-year-old boys um, so often do, uh, and I can see the wheel spinning in his head, and he starts taking one step away from me, and then another one, and then another one. And slowly these steps start building momentum and he thinks it's a wonderful idea to start running all the way down the parking lot that's full of cars, cars driving in back and forth. And he's very tiny, no one would see him. And he thinks this is the greatest game ever. And so he starts laughing and I scream, Cash, stop, stop. And he's just like, ha, 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 I'm running away from mom. And it was very scary for me because he had no idea. He had no idea the danger. He just thought he was running and getting some energy out and this is really cool. Um, but I can see the whole parking lot. I know all the dangers that lie ahead. I know if he takes a turn one way or the other way, some car is, it's gonna be the perfect timing. He comes out, the car, I mean, flat as a pancake, bad, bad stuff. I know this as the parent, but he doesn't know it as the, the kid. He doesn't realize my warnings are for his safety because I have knowledge he doesn't have. I can see the things he can't see. He's too young to know the risks or the consequences of his running. It was not just an arbitrary thing I was chasing him after. It was a life or death situation. Does that start to ring a bell with any of you ladies? Do you see where I'm going with this? How the Lord used it. Have you ever seen your child running away from you and saw yourself in their shoes? Have you ever felt the pain of their distrust as they gleefully disobeyed your instructions? That day, the Lord granted me the perspective of both parties, the pained parent watching their child rebel towards danger and the wayward child who thinks she knows who or what's best. I'm gonna butcher this name, Tullian Chavidian. I don't think I said that right, but that's not important. <laughs> he says in his book, um, to flee from God is to rise against God. Every time we sin, we're telling God, my way of navigating this particular situation is better than yours. My wisdom and my skill are more efficient and effective in this moment than your wisdom and skill. It is not that we stop believing, it's just what, we believing, what we're believing has shifted. We see something to this effect in the story of the prodigal son in the book of Luke. There are three parties to consider in this story. You have the younger brother, you have the elder brother, and you have the father. The younger brother was foolish and demanded an inheritance and he squandered it and sheepish, sheepishly returned to his father's house, fully expecting wrath, but maybe just a little shred of pity. Maybe you can relate to the younger brother. Maybe you've had moments in your life where you have completely turned against God and then you came back and, and were welcomed with open arms. But what about the older brother? What about the one who was enraged by the celebration that his younger brother got in his homecoming? Perhaps you cannot relate to the rebellion and the recklessness of the younger brother, but what about the obedient son? Are you a rule follower? Do you work hard to be a good Christian? Do you strive to be well-respected in your community? Do you serve, coach, volunteer, and homeschool? Great, that's awesome, all those are wonderful things, but for whose glory are you doing that? As my page is stuck. <laughs> when things don't go your way, do you, feel, do you feel slighted by God because you think you've earned something different? 
Do you covet when people who don't follow the rules as strictly as you do find success and blessing? Are you trying to earn God's grace? Whether we, whether we run because of rebellion or because of pride, the story of the prodigal son, as Tim Keller puts it, might be better called the parable of the lost two sons. As I mentioned earlier, we must be careful to, place total, uh, to not place total attention on ourselves in this story because the story is really a story about the father of grace. And Tim Keller, I keep referencing him, but he wrote a book about this topic called The Prodigal God. And in it, he defines the term prodigal as number one, recklessly extravagant, and number two, having spent everything. Recklessly extravagant and having spent everything. Does that sound like a father that we know? It does to me. Looking at it this way, do your glasses start to change to be gospel colored in this situation? If not yet, let me read you. What if I were to say that God told you, I have swept away your sins like a cloud. I have scattered your offenses like the morning mist. Oh, return to me, for I have paid the price to set you free. Ladies, he did say that. He said it in Isaiah 44, 22. Does the magnetism of the gospel pull you closer to God after a statement like that? It's the favor my favorite verse in the entire book that I wrote. We hear the longing and the care and the cost of what it took for God to chase after us and to love us and to reestablish that relationship. And we have to ask ourselves, has our running ever found us a greater consolation than the hope we have in Jesus Christ? Even in our running, the Lord relentlessly pursues us like a mom chasing a child in a busy parking lot. He knows the dangers. He knows what's best. He knows what lies in store for us, but we only see the here and now. He sees the big picture while we're only seeing pixels of it. As we press in to know God through his word and to trust his ways, we find the courage to look more closely at ourselves and where our rebellious attitudes are running wild. Lamentations 3.40 says, let us examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us, ladies, let us examine our ways. We don't have to be scared to look at our hearts, our messy, sinful hearts. God gives us hope. There's hope for looking at these things by bringing them into the light. Um, they are healed and we can find true and lasting change. We don't have to fear what we're going to see because God already knows it's there. He knows it's there before we even do. Taking a look at our messy hearts can be painful, difficult, and challenging, but it's not meant to be done alone. It's meant to be done in community. And we can gather as we have today to pray for one another, to carry one another's burdens, to confess to one another, encourage one another, counsel one another, rebuke one another, speak the truth and love to one another, exhort one another, honor one another, love one another. Ladies, do you realize there are 59 one another's in the New Testament? So what makes you think any part of this can be done by yourself? It just can't. And I think that's why a lot of you guys are here today, because you know you need a community built from the body of Christ. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes about this. He says, therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ, than, I'm sorry, the Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. As I said before, ladies, in Christ we are not without hope, and by his spirit we are not without help. Part of the ways Christ's hope and his help are given to us is through his body. Therefore, without being united to the body of Christ in fellowship, we cannot truly examine our hearts with full confidence and full assurance of change. As we look back at these stories, um, we've examined them, we've been vulnerable, I've been vulnerable, perhaps you're being convicted about some, some areas too. Um, you know, these stories I shared with you are common occurrences, it's not anything special. It's just everyday motherhood, everyday trials, but the gospel applies. The gospel comes into our everyday and wants to encourage us in it and give us hope. We don't have to shy away from looking at the hard stuff. Um, we can see how easy it is to distance ourselves from our own heart issues simply because we find ourselves front and center of dealing with the heart issues of our children. So our focus then becomes, how can I get them to have better behavior? How can I get them to be more obedient? How can I get them to listen to what I say for the first time and not the 10th time? Our focus is all about them, and that's good. We are in charge of raising them up in God's word with discipline and love and discipleship. But ladies, that can't be our only focus. We're not their saviors, okay? We're not our children's saviors. First and foremost, God wants us to be concerned with our relationship with him. Are we obeying his word? Are we spending time with him through his word and getting to know him more? Every moment of our motherhood is carefully crafted by a good and loving father who wants us to thrive and live simply by surrendering to him, trusting him, and trusting his sovereignty over our lives. Gloria Furman, who's also an author, she wrote, we're surrounded by the circumstances he has ordained for our sanctification. When our perspective of this life is nearsighted, we become to believe that what's in front of us is all there really is. We resist doing awkward things entailed in walking with love. We despise the hard work it takes to run the race. We avoid the pain that results from fighting for our faith by choosing not to fight at all. Fellow moms, if there's nothing else that you walk away with today, please take this point to heart and do not let the devil try to pry it from your hands. If you have experienced God's saving grace, you are guaranteed his transforming grace. He will not leave you where you are at. He will change you. The moment you accept Christ as Savior and Lord, change becomes part of your DNA. You will fail and mess things up. No, you will not be perfect. Yes, you will have problems and pain and suffering. And no, that does not mean you have been separated from the Father's love. Yes, you will be tempted in every way possible to sin while you're raising the little sinners God gave to you. But no, you do not have to let your repeated failures crush your spirit. 
Choose to fight here, ladies. Choose to fight knowing that God fights for you. The spirit, the spirit wages war against the flesh. On our behalf, we can and we should enlist to join that battle. We fight because we know we cannot lose. Long term, the victory is already won. We know how the story ends, right? Let us press on, as Paul said in Philippians 3, 12 through 14. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. We have examined some really difficult, challenging topics today, but I hope and pray that more than your failures, you have been driven clearly or you have been driven to see Christ clearly, who humbled himself in obedience to the Father's will, to the point of a cross, to the point of death on a cross, so that you would know what love was always designed to be. We've looked at the ugliness of our sin, but we've also looked at the victory of our living hope, who is alive and seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us and walking with us in grace and truth. I spoke about our tendencies to turn away from the Lord and his ways and instead pursue our own self-reliance, but we also looked at the gospel's beckoning call for us to come back. The love of the Father who spent everything he had to welcome us home. Embrace your messy hearts, ladies, but don't be content to leave them that way because God is not content to leave them that way. Cling to the hope you have in Christ Draw near to the Lord and he will come near to you. Confess, repent, and repeat. That is the lifetime of our sanctification. Confess, repent, repeat, and move on. Through these things, there's power in healing. Don't let pride stand in your way. Remember who you are in Christ. You are sinful and flawed, yet welcomed and adored. You are sinner and saint at the same time. And remember, whether you're walking with your head held high or with it hung low, the fact remains, as Charles Spurgeon put it, our hope does not reside in our ability to preserve a good mood, but in his ability to bear us up. Um, I want to close by, if you would like to join me, um, I'd like to read Isaiah 46, 3 through 4. I'm going to ask for us just to bow our heads and to close our eyes. And I would like for you to hear these words. God has this for you today. Close your eyes, bow your head, and listen to what the Father says to you. Listen to me, descendants of Jacob, all you who remain in Israel. I have cared for you since you were born. Yes, I carried you before you were born. I will be your God throughout your lifetime until your hair is white with age. I made you and I will care for you. I will carry you along and save you. Father, I'm just so thankful for this time today with the ladies of Cornerstone Church, Lord, and I just pray that you have stirred something up powerful in their hearts, Lord, that you pour out your spirit in immense, 
immense doses, Lord, to give them hope and courage that the struggles that they're going through in their motherhood are not without hope. There's hope for change. There's hope that things are coming that are going to be different and that things are not just gonna stay stuck the way that they are. Lord, please bless the time that they have discussing together um, here in their groups, Lord. And I just thank you first and foremost, the greatest thanks for your son, Jesus Christ, who made this all possible. And without him, we have no hope, Lord. Without him and without your cross, our hope is just wishful thinking. But we know that we do not serve a God of wishful thinking. We serve a God that has been witnessed. He's witnessed alive. He's witnessed resurrected and ascended. And he's now at your right hand praying for us and this time we're spending together. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Here's to the mothers. Here's to the boo-boo kissers. Here's to the get up and warm the milk at 2 a.m. women. You are braver than you know. You make the music that makes the life, that gives the rhythm to the day in and out and in again. Courageous. You deliver babies by C-section or adoption certificate or by push and pant and wailing battle cry of birth. You give more than you think you have. And when you're empty, when you're bone dry, you wring out one more drop, one more bottle, one more soothing the temper tantrum. Hero, you make a budget stretch. You clip coupons, you fight ketchup stains. You face the awkward parent-teacher moments. You listen, you translate for your child. You do the hard work of teaching at every turn. You find a hundred new ways to answer a hundred new versions of the question, why? Champion, you show up, you take photos, you cheer. You shuttle boys and bags of gear between sports fields and serve up ice cream afterwards. You disagree with him. You make her change her skirt, but you love fiercely from beneath those unruly bangs. You learn to laugh at your reflection. You revel in your smiley wrinkles. Real, you lose your temper. You yell and apologize and stamp your foot in proof that you are human. You cry. You venture out into an ocean of vulnerability with only a small dinghy and two short oars to keep you afloat when you become a parent. Anchor. You yield your figure, your abs, your size four jeans, but your will turns to muscle unheard of. It grows strong with determination. No one will wound these children without going through you first. You are a last harbor, a lighthouse in the storm of internet and Facebook, failed grades and peer pressure. But in the everydayness of these moments, you start to feel it. The weight of glory, the glorious ordinary. And on your quietest, least interesting days, you get better at hearing the music of motherhood. Slowly, a harmony rises from the collection of tasks every mother cycles through in a day. The sacred marriage of the mundane and the eternal. The small directly related to the massive. Kids walking around like so much eternity with skin on. 
there is no part of your everyday wash and rinse and repeat routine that isn't significant. You make the music that makes the life that gives the rhythm to the day in and out and in again. You are braver than you know because you mother.